This is Tony Roth, and you are listening to Wilmington Trust Capital Considerations. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that we haven't heard all that much about, as many other topics seem to have dominated the headlines, but it's a topic that rears its ugly head periodically in very scary ways, and that is the topic of cybersecurity. And as always, I'd like to remind our listeners that nothing that we say should be construed as a political view in any way, certainly not one in favor or against any political party or political actor here in the United States. So today we have a very qualified guest to help us negotiate this complicated topic. And that is Eric Trexler, who is a senior vice president at Palo Alto Networks, which is a leading cybersecurity company. And Eric is responsible specifically for the US public sector business of Palo Alto Networks. He has over 30 years of experience in technology across public and private sectors. And prior to joining Palo Alto, Eric has been at numerous other firms, including Forcepoint, Sybase, and numerous others. I also think it's really great that Eric, prior to his career in the private sector, was an airborne ranger with the US Army, specializing in communications. So Eric, welcome and thanks for your service to the country. Thank you, Tony. Eric, when I think about cybersecurity, I typically think about the various categories of victims. And yeah. I think about us as private actors individually. I think about the government, whether it be appropriation of government secrets or whether it be impairment of government systems because they're subject to some type of activity that disenables their systems. And then lastly, we have all the, the whole world of private companies, which are probably your clients that are paying you guys to help keep them free of this kind of interference. Are you guys most concerned about one of those areas today? And where is the most concerning activity occurring right now? Cybersecurity is national security for not just America, but countries across the globe. Whether you're on the offensive or the defensive, it is infused in everything we do, public and private. So at Palo Alto Networks, our main goal is to make the world a safer place. I run the U.S. public sector business, so state, local education, and federal. My peers run commercial. They'll run the largest to the smallest organizations across America and across the globe. As an organization, though, the adversary is always coming after us, and we need to defend regardless of the organization we represent. And as individuals, there's a lot we have to do to protect ourselves also. I just read a stat last night. I was flying on a red eye back and I couldn't sleep. So I read a stat. Social security numbers are going for 25 cents right now in bulk on the dark web. Hmm. I mean, think about that. What do you do with that information? I mean, you know what the adversary may do, but how do you protect yourself? So cybersecurity is a national security problem, but I, I think it is a global problem. How has it changed and evolved, let's say, in the last decade? Is the situation improving? Is the situation becoming more perilous? It's a constant fight, right, between the good guys and the bad guys and from a technology standpoint. Very naively, I would have thought that, okay, the technology would learn how to close off the back doors and the approaches as new software comes out, but it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like we're falling even further behind from a cybersecurity standpoint, or the tools of the bad actors seem to be potentially 
improving faster than we can keep up. How do you assess the overall situation? You're reminding me of a famous quote, somewhat famous in our industry, at least, from a, a gentleman, Bruce Schneier, who's a, a famous cryptologist. And he would say for cybersecurity, we're getting better, but we're getting worse faster. <laughs> we are getting better. We're talking about technology here. And like any technology, I like to baseline things. Fire, airplanes, pick a technology. It can be used for good or for evil. And, and that's what we're experiencing right now in the space. People are using technology for evil purposes. We see a lot in the space. We see ransomware. 70% of the cases we deal with are either business email compromise, which usually lead to intellectual property theft, or ransomware for cash. Somebody's trying to make money. 70% of those cases right now are ransomware or business email compromise. When we look at the industry, ransomware has grown to a $30 billion industry. The average cost per incident is up over $5 million right now. So we've got some indications that the problem is growing worse. Can you give us a generic example of where ransomware was actually paid in the last three, four months in order to cause the evildoers to cease and desist from locking their system or taking their information or something of that nature? I'll give you one that'll probably come right to mind for you. And I'm only using public data, so I don't mind mentioning it's what's been reported in the press. Never hear of a, a small company called Colonial Pipeline? Yep. I think that was 21, I believe. Mm -hmm. They paid $4.4 million in ransom. I don't think they got a whole lot for doing that. The data I've seen shows somewhere in upwards of 80% of ransomware cases, we pay the ransom with different levels of success in getting your data back, getting accessibility to your data. It's probably not the way you want to go. Most companies from that data I just gave you, the stat I gave you, think that this is a, a way they have to go. Are there actors that refuse to pay ransomware as a policy? The U.S. government, let's start with the Well, the U.S. government's government a great example, right? You really don't want the U.S. government on your back if you're a bad actor. What we saw with Colonial Pipeline, you know, that was reportedly dark side. That group, once you get the United States government on your back, the president of the United States is talking about you. That group's disbanded. The actors have come back in different forms, but that group disbanded because you don't want that. Additionally, you know that the U.S. government is highly unlikely to pay ransom. It's not an opportune target. And, and why go after the U.S. government anyway, Tony, when you can pick anybody else out there commercially if you're looking for, for money, if that's your motivation, treasure, as, as I'd like to call it, just go after any company. Hell, go after all the companies. How do you assess the, the walls around companies today in the U.S., for example? Is it so totally company dependent? Is it sector dependent? We work for a financial company here at Wilmington Trust, part of the yeah. M&T group. There's lots of other regional banks. Are we all about the same, you think? Or is it widely varying depending on the company? So more really for any kind of company. It could be a pharmaceutical company that probably has lots of secrets around how they make their drugs. How do you characterize the state of the current threat from the perspective of the defenses that we have? Is it totally company dependent or is it more different kinds of companies are better than others? So are you trying to assess the threat or the ability to defend against the threat? The, well, both, I suppose. Ultimately, what is the risk? So the risk is high. Lots of weak points and access points uh, across 
organizations, things like outdated software, failure to patch, things like that, unsecured network connections, human error. You may have critical systems open to the internet. We do a lot of work around attack surface management where we can actually scan the internet repeatedly for a client, mm -hmm. let them know what the adversary can see from an external perspective. So if an adversary is working with an insider threat, obviously that's not going to be a great challenge unless the insider threat does something to open up ports to the external world, but you can look at what does the adversary see? We've got supply chain challenges. Think about things like solar winds or storm 0558 that just hit the State Department and Department of Commerce this past summer of 23. So, so there are a ton of threats and it really depends on what the adversaries are trying to go after. Are they nation states trying to steal intellectual property? Are they launching a wiper and trying to wipe systems? Are they trying to cause some disruption, some sabotage? because they're going to launch an attack on a nation like Ukraine? Or are they ransomware actors looking for treasure? I wanna make $5 million, let me go out after that. What we observe and what I've seen over my career is there is a somewhat of a correlation by industry. Industries that have better profit margins, they're typically richer, they might be more IT savvy, tend to be a little better protected. Mm -hmm. And then there are other organizations and industries that are that are not as well protected. And then there are others when you look at things like critical infrastructure, where you have a lot of legacy equipment that was never meant to be on the internet that's on the internet. And those are unique challenges of their own. But the industry is really working hard. We're trying to figure this out and understand how do we better protect customers? One observation I've made over the last 10 years or so is there are too many players in the industry. We have to consolidate. There are over 4,000 vendors in the cybersecurity industry. If you're a bank, how do you decide what tools you need to use to protect your organization when you have to look at up to 4,000 companies? How do you get them to integrate and work well together in a timely and cost-efficient manner? Unlike anywhere else in information technology, cybersecurity is the wild, wild west in many cases. Are banks spending more? Are companies in general spending more today? As Everybody's percent? spending more. If, if you look, there's a... Not uh, on an absolute basis, but as a percent of their free cash flow, are companies spending more on this issue of cybersecurity than they were three years ago? The data I've seen shows that companies are spending about 3% on average some much more, some much less, and it does vary by industry, about 3% of their information technology budgets on cybersecurity. Okay. So many will go up towards 8 10%, depending on, and it depends by year too, depending on what you're trying to do. But it, it's not an insignificant expense. The entire industry right now is looking at about, I think the latest I saw was about $212 billion dollars is kind of what the cybersecurity industry is looking at from a market opportunity, if you will. That's what companies are spending to protect themselves. So what, what are they getting for their money? Are they, as a whole, still less safe than they were two years ago? Or are they getting safer in certain cases? We have advanced our capabilities from a defensive perspective. We've advanced our capabilities from a knowledge perspective. We're having this conversation. Five years ago, you and I probably wouldn't even have had this conversation. Right. So we're getting much better. But so is the adversary. When you look at things like artificial intelligence, well, we're using that to get better, to be faster. We don't have enough people. The workforce is missing in America alone about 700,000 
jobs are unfilled right now in the cybersecurity field. We're using technology such as artificial intelligence and machine learning to make up for areas where humans are not. We're also looking at using it to be faster. When you look at the attack surface, a machine can look at that and evaluate and make decisions faster than a human. Make the hard decisions go to the human, let the machine use it. But the adversaries are using it in the very same way. So you've heard of ChatGPT, right? Of course. Have you heard of WormGPT? Nope, that, I have not heard of that. <laughs> no, that's the adversary coming after you using AI. Generative AI. So you've seen phishing emails, haven't you? Mm -hmm. The old Nigerian prince email? You needed to send some money to Africa to help somebody out. So, okay. Imagine an email that is a phishing email. So it, it has ill intent. The purpose is to get you to take some action, to give them credentials, to click on a link, to send money somewhere. It really doesn't matter. If I'm in a foreign country and English is not my first language, I'm going to write that email, but there's a high probability that I'm going to make a mistake in that email that indicates to you, this is not coming from my bank. Right. Well, with ChatGPT and AI, I can now craft emails in native tongue of English, sure. even though that's not my native tongue, that read pretty darn close to the way you or I would write the email. Right. Much more convincing a very simple way that I think most people can say, oh, okay, I see how the adversary may be using some of these advanced tools right. to better attack our businesses, our personal lives, whatever it may be. Right, so we need to be increasingly paranoid in order to protect Paranoia them. in this case is very good. Have corresponding data. Call the bank if you're unsure. Log in not through the link that was sent in that phishing email or that email. Log in the way you normally do and check out if something. If there's an email in your box. I've gotten four emails this week from eBay saying that they're going to deduct $9.95 from my account. It hasn't happened. I didn't touch the email. I just deleted them all. But when I log into eBay, I know that that email is inaccurate. Now, what I'll tell you is, that email looks a heck of a lot more convincing than it did five years ago. Right. So that's something we all need to be mindful about. Yeah, I um, decided to sell a bed that I have. So I went on to Facebook Marketplace. My wife told me that was better than Craigslist. Put the pictures up there, posted the ad of the bed. And within about five minutes, I had 30 people interested in this bed. I was like, wow. It became clear to me over time that none of those 30 people were actually real individuals that had any- I was going to ask you how many were human. <laughs> they were trying to get me to somehow communicate with them using Venmo in some way that I would, they would probably be able to compromise my Venmo account. I, um, I suppose that's what they were trying to do. But I realized, wow, this is really weird that so many people are interested in this bed in the first five minutes. And I deleted all, all the emails. And then eventually I found somebody who replied at, you know, in the middle of the business day. No one replied before or after. It seemed like a, a real human being. I asked some questions that only a person could answer and then eventually decided it was worth a shot. But boy, if I hadn't been paranoid in the first instance, I probably would have got burned. I think that's a great way to handle it, Tony. I think most people would not go to those extremes. I don't know that they're extremes, but whether it's disinformation, go validate it. Go validate the sources, cross-reference it, or you're buying something. Exact same thing. Maybe you call them up get a phone number and call them and actually talk to them. Use an alternate mechanism to validate what exactly. you're seeing and hearing. The challenge we have in 2023 is the velocity problem. 
it is so easy and there's so much out there and we're moving so fast. People don't take the time to validate, verify the sources. It goes back to the fundamentals of the earliest parts of society, trust. Do you trust what you're doing or what you're seeing? And then do you take an appropriate action? You've got to validate trust. So let's talk about different actors and different targets for a moment. I'm really interested to understand who would attack the U.S. government, who wants the U.S. government on their backs. Whoa, whoa, from a ransomware perspective. From a ransomware perspective. Let's say the Department of Defense or you're the Army or you're the, you know, one of these other components of the government. How much pressure are they under these days in terms of pressure from China and Russia? And are they well protected, do you think? It's massive. It's absolutely massive. When you think about espionage, when you think about sabotage, when you think about IP theft, that's what our adversaries in America are going after. And we see evidence of that in aircraft and, and ships and other things that have obviously evolved from American designs. So we spend a lot of time in the government trying to protect. On the DOD side, we call it the DODEN, right? The DOD Information Networks. On the civilian side, with civilian agencies. And there's a tremendous amount of resourcing put into that. And what's our payback on it? In other words, our taxpayer dollars are going into this. So I pay my taxes, maybe, you know, 1% goes into this. I have no idea what percentage of my taxpayer dollars go into this, but some percentage does. Do you think that the Doden network is was compromised less in the last 12 months than in the prior 12 months? Or do you think that it's just getting worse? What I will tell you is our adversaries are all over us. And there's some rules in cybersecurity that I think are really important to be mindful of. The adversary has very little risk. What's the penalty to somebody trying to attack the DOD? It's low. They get as many chances as they want because there isn't a lot of risk. You can just attack and attack and attack. Once you break in, you're good. The other rule I like to look at is the adversary only has to be right once. Right. So they can launch a million attacks and be successful once. And they may steal the IP that they were looking for. Or they may put a piece of malware on a critical uh, control system that they want to activate at a certain time down the future should a conflict evolve into something that they need to do that. The defenders, they don't get to pick the battlefield. They're being attacked. They know, Well, they know what it is, but they know they're being attacked. The adversary gets as many chances as they want, and they have to be perfect. So what we need to do as an industry is really look at how we evaluate ourselves. You will never be perfect. We need to move the time to detect, what we call mean time to detect in the industry. We need to shrink that from days, months, to minutes. If an adversary is successful, how quickly can we detect that? And then how do we remediate? How do we stop it? How do we take action quickly? And that's a great example where automation, artificial intelligence, integrated systems, it allows us to be faster in the defense, recognizing you're not always going to be perfect. We can't be. How do we handle it when something happens? We are getting much better at that, but the adversary is getting faster. The volumes are growing massively. So that's a challenge. So why is it that I inherently sense, not from talking to you per se, the focus of our conversation, Eric, but just in general, from my awareness of the space and the phenomenon, that for every you know dollar or penny that, that I put as a taxpayer into helping to protect the Dota, there's probably only a tiny fraction of that that I'm putting into 
some offensive capability within the Department of Defense to go after Iran or China or Russia's systems. Am I wrong about that? I don't know if that's the way to think about it. So we are the best in the world at offensive and defensive cyber operations. We are. Okay. So that's- We are. Absolutely. So that means that for every account that we hear of, of a incursion, if you will, into our, call it national cyber space, scape, mm -hmm. there's probably one or two that we've made into the Chinese or into the Russians that- it's not reported, but we're doing the same thing and we're getting information from them at even a, a more rapid pace. I think you can know we're the most talented organization or, or country in the world when it comes to cyber operations, offensive and defensive. We also have the largest attack surface. We're the most evolved, most connected country in the world, which makes us highly vulnerable. We have a lot of treasure. We are the most lucrative target in the world. Because of our advanced technology, our advanced society, you know, the freedoms that we have. So you will see disinformation attacks trying to disrupt society. We've seen that around the elections over the past couple elections, right? It's in many people's interest to disrupt American society, to add friction to it. The problem with cybersecurity is we're all connected. We're globally connected. So it's really easy. If you wanted to attack the United States of America 50 years ago, you had to actually go to or launch a weapon at the United States of America from somewhere. And I guess you could talk about a, you know, an intercontinental ballistic missile, but we can see that we knew, you know, mutually assured destruction was, was pretty helpful in that case. Right. Today, you could be a 16 year old kid in Ghana and you could attack the Department of Defense or the U.S. Treasury. In today's landscape, you'd have to be pretty sophisticated with some pretty powerful software behind you to have any hope of success in something like that. Uh, Not necessarily. Yeah. You've got to have an open system on the internet. Somebody made a mistake. Maybe they didn't protect their cloud resources. So not necessarily. And what is an open system? In other words, if I was to put together the Tony Roth army and I had my own yeah. air force and I had my own Marines and army rangers and really cool things like that. I wouldn't even put it on the internet. I would just create my own no to no network that wasn't attached to the internet so that nobody could actually attack me. You can say that, but I can tell you whether it's industrial control systems that were never designed for the internet or it's classified government networks. We're not perfect. And they oftentimes, due to mission requirements or mistakes or something else, get connected, at least temporarily, to the internet. Think about an air gap network where someone's using a thumb drive to move a file from one to another, a patched file, a patch file, whatever it may be. And in that file is a piece of malware. Right, which opens you to the internet. Yeah, so I was talking to a friend a couple of years ago because I used to do a lot in cross-domain work, which was really how to deal with air gap networks. And we were looking at it for industrial control systems, so critical infrastructure. And we were having a discussion about if we, if we just keep those systems off the internet and we can pass data up and we can pass logs out in secure ways, we know how to do that, that'd be ideal. And his deadpan response to me, Tony, was, 
That horse left the barn a long time ago. We're too connected. It's too convenient. As humans, we like convenience over security in many cases, especially when we don't understand the costs to limited security. You've got to look at incentive. The incentive to the adversary is just to get right one time and they meet their goals. The incentive to the defender or you and I as just citizens trying to log in on our bank account is to do something that's easier and more beneficial to our work or to our lives. And we aren't perfect and we don't always think about it. So I think incentive is a really, really important thing. I also think what we're missing in the space, you wanna talk about fixing the space, is cost. Mm -hmm. The cost to the adversary, we're thinking risk now, is really low. What happens if somebody steals your identity? You're probably not gonna get a whole lot of love from the FBI. I don't know the Department of Homeland Security is going to get it. But if somebody steals your identity and they're in Eastern Europe, that's a you problem. One of my family members had a situation, I think it was last year, where she was fortunately not, I don't think they really fully got her identity because things seemed to settle down. But so what do we do? Well, we called our insurance company because we actually had some protection under our homeowner's policy for cyber theft. Yeah. And they said, well, first thing you have to do is you have to report it to your police, your local police. So I sort of laughed at that. So we called the police. I bet the local police laughed too. Well, you know, strangely enough, the local police actually assigned the case to somebody, to a local detective, and the guy was well-intended. And he actually did some work and tried to figure something out. I don't know what he did behind the scenes, but followed up with us a couple of times. And I was thinking to myself, nice enough guy, but what could he possibly accomplish with the tools of our local municipality? Let's assume that he caught somebody or he found out who it was, but they were in Bolivia. Right. What's his jurisdiction? And the chance of him even arriving at that conclusion is just so remote. It is really very interesting to think about it in those terms. So what do you do as a very aware actor in our world to protect yourself other than exercise a heightened degree of common sense? The extra level of cautiousness, I use a password manager, highly encrypted, don't put it online. I use a password manager and I always use complex passwords. I change them periodically. I use multi-factor authentication whenever I can. I used to run a podcast uh, for about four years and my co-host, the multi-factor authentication was just too much for her. She, she didn't like it. It, was, it, it slowed her down. And we're running a cybersecurity podcast. So, I mean, we each look at what we do in different ways. I consistently look at the source and then I try to find additional ways to assure that that source is a valid source. Somebody wants to buy something from me, I might say, give me a call or give me your number and I will call you. So you need to be aware. And I think that's really important. Multi-factor authentication is probably one of the most important things you can do. Having good backups offline in your house and offsite of your systems, super, super critical. In the military, we used to talk about having our head on a swivel. You were always looking for something coming at you. Right, right. You really want that in this space also. It's so important. But I don't worry about things like my social security number. 
because the Chinese have it. It's on the dark web. That horse left the barn years ago. So there's certain things I don't worry about as much. I worry more when, when an application asks me for my social security number, I don't worry about that too much. But when it asks me what school I went to for high school as a challenge question, that concerns me because anybody can look that up on the web. Use your head, use common sense. If you have a concern, it's probably justified, at least vet it out before you make a determination whether you proceed with an action or not. And then the less you can put online, unencrypted, available to everybody, the better. And the other thing I don't do, I don't use social media. I'll use LinkedIn for work, but that's it. Too many people I've worked with, we've tracked people. I mean, you know exactly what their routine is when they're on vacation, when they're at home. I think that's a bad practice, personally. I'm not telling everybody what to do. But if you tell somebody you're in Sarasota, Florida for the next week, you've essentially told them you're not at your house. I don't use social media because I'm, I'm not even remotely cool enough to exist in that space. You know, it's reassuring to know that there are people, especially cool people in California that don't use social media like you. It's funny to hear you talk about two-factor authentication because recently I, I went on a website to buy a dog bed for one of my dogs. And they said, you know, do you want to turn on two-factor authentication? And I sort of rolled my eyes and I said, well, you know, why? All you know is my address. The only thing that I, that I provided to that website was the address. And I guess it's a credit card, but only on a very temporary basis. They don't purport to keep that information. So I'm like, I'm not going to do two-factor authentication because who cares? Is that a mistake? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, you've got to live life, right? Well, let me ask you a question. Would you use multi-factor authentication on your bank account or the, the dog website? Which, I mean, which one's a higher priority for multi-factor authentication? I think my bank account, right? Okay. I, I would definitely agree with you. What about your cell phone account when you log in with AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, whoever you're using? Probably would use it there as well. Okay. So what you're doing is you're making a judgment based on trust and risk. And I think that's appropriate. And I think we all have that judgment that we've got to make. But the fact that you're thinking about it, we're having the discussion makes us better. It makes us stronger. I think that's a really good way to handle it, to look at it. Well, we're running out of time in the conversation. If I were to summarize, you know, a takeaway for all of us is bring the common sense that we use when we leave our house every day, whether it's to walk across the street in the crosswalk instead of in the middle of the block, which is what I typically do since I'm a New Yorker. Apply that same common sense to your, your existence and your presence in the, the digital domain. I think that's a great way to look at it. You go back to the earliest parts of society, trust again. If you see a shady character hanging out in the dark at night, you might not walk on that side of the street or you might go a different way. That street, that's the internet in modern day times. Many people can think about it in that physical format and bring it over. That might help them understand, hey, multi-factor authentication is like turning the other way when I see some shady characters down the block in the shadows. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to take action. This is what society looks like in 2023. Just manage it as if it's society, because it is. Is there anything that you think is going to be particularly interesting in the next 12 months? let's just say in this space, in other words, we've got a big election happening next year, got a couple of big wars going on in the world. Those are huge. If you look back 12 months from now, the big, biggest headline in you know, your professional 
area of focus. What do you think it might be? I think we'll see a lot in cybersecurity around the election. CISA and, and the government did a really good job from all reports on the last presidential election, securing the vote. They really did a nice job, and I firmly, firmly believe that. I think they're going to do the same thing again, but we'll see a lot of information. The one I would probably focus on, the one we have the most control around, other than our own personal security and, and the actions we take at work, of course, is around disinformation. Disinformation is going to ramp up massively. It's going to ramp up around the election. How do we know that? Well, it did in 16 and it did in 20, right. and it's going to do it even more. The artificial intelligence capabilities we have now, you're going to see just a, a volume we've never seen before around it. And then you look at the wars, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in Israel and Palestine. That is an area where we're already seeing massive amounts of disinformation from deep fakes to fake imagery to just imagery that in Ukraine, you might find a picture of some vehicle that was destroyed talking about an event that happened yesterday, but the image was from a month ago or a year ago. Right. Validate your sources. As citizens of the United States and anybody else who's listening, I think that's the one we have the most direct control over. What do we believe and why? But I believe that questioning, seeking out truth, understanding, because everything is a variation of the truth. Yeah, we're probably moving outside the realm of what the conversation was intended to cover. But, you know, I think that it's important also to recognize that we can all find a convenient truth if we want to, given the biases that we start the process with and what we want to hear. So that's also something that I think is just worth considering. I'll leave you with, and this is opinion only, a thought. I would say if you find yourself always agreeing with the sources you receive information from and you're not finding errors in, in your logic, it, they're not disagreeable in any way. You're probably not looking at enough data. I like that. And I like that very much, that summation of this part of the conversation. So, Eric, it's been a really interesting conversation. And I think we've touched on some things I didn't expect to today. Thank you so much for challenging us and challenging how we think about things and giving us an update on cybersecurity. Yeah, nope, this was, this was great. Just for all your listeners, think again. Always pressure test everything you're doing and protect yourselves. Thank you. So that was our episode today of Capital Considerations. And invite everybody to go to WilmingtonTrust.com for our latest roundup of thought leadership in the investment space and other areas. Have a great day, everybody. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. The opinions of any guest on the Capital Considerations podcast who are not employed by Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank are their own and do not necessarily represent those of M&T Bank Corporate or any of its affiliates. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, 
tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk, and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Third-party trademarks and brands are the property of their respective owners. Third parties referenced herein are independent companies and are not affiliated with M&T Bank or Wilmington Trust. Listing them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Wilmington Trust. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definition of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide or seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risks including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust N.A., WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, Wilmington Trust Asset Management, LLC, WTAM, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial, agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. Copyright 2023 M&T Bank and its affiliates and subsidiaries. All rights reserved.